This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pipe Dream, an Alaskan Adventure. And the author is D.B. Brownlow, and Debbie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Debbie. Hello. Good to have you with us. You're in the frigid temperatures of Alaska, though it is a heat wave, you say, since uh, you've come way up from 50 below. Right. We're 23 <laughs> below today. So 23 like below. I'm yeah. in the uh, tropics. Well, that is an adventure in Alaska, that's for sure. Well, your book, it's uh, your memoirs, would you call it? Yes, I would. It was. It started out as a journal, uh, writing it to my brother, but yes, a memoir. Okay, well, you say uh, Debbie was a young woman working in a stifling office job in suburban Detroit, and you dreamed of faraway places and longed for excitement. So your book is kind of a journey, uh, personal experiences, where instead of just dreaming, you went to these faraway places and a lot of excitement along the way. Yeah, it was a real adventure, and uh, I was a pioneer. Inside was a pioneer in that little person in Detroit. <laughs> so this is back when? When When did this all, when did these uh, feelings of getting away start? How old were you? I was in uh, my early 20s and um, had been working uh, secretarial positions, executive secretarial positions in Detroit. And in 1974, absolutely uh, did not tolerate the job I was at any longer and decided that I would uh, I would make my move and take off and, and really wasn't quite sure where I was headed, but I was leaving Detroit and in my safe comfort zone, I decided. And you left your miserable boss, Herb. No, no, I had never met my miserable oh, boss. Oh, he's Herb up in yet. Alaska. That, oh. He's yet to come. He's I left come. nine miserable bosses <laughs> that I was working for. It's not that they were so much miserable. They were unusual. And um, people probably these days don't even remember things like dictaphones and manual typewriters and and that that I had to work with. But I worked for nine men and did most of the work. And, um, and shorthand. Yeah, shorthand and, and stuff like that. Right. And I just was so bored, and I knew that um, at that time I didn't have really much college. I'd just gone right out into the work uh, field after high school and just wanted to do something else and knew that... Um, just knew that I had a calling to leave, that there was too much in this world and too big of a world to, to stay in Michigan. So you first went to California, though. That was your first trip out of um, uh, Detroit? When I was 21, yes. I took a trip to California, and a, a couple things happened. They're silly. I was bumped up into first class, which I figured was a sign from somebody that I should <laughs> be going places, 
And I was laying outside and uh, soaking up the sun and felt my first earthquake. And that must have shook more than just my body because then I started doing little trips after that when I came home. And you also got an invitation to, uh, I guess, join a commune. I did. That was rather exciting. I was on Hollywood Boulevard just uh, walking around, and before I knew it, I had somebody, quite a few people, about three inches from my face that started strumming and singing. And what was frightening, they all had uh, huge smiles on their faces, and coming from Detroit, that was that threw me off. I was <laughs> just terrified and told me that I could join them and go to their ranch or farm in Tennessee. I think it was at that time called the Jesus Freaks. But that to do that, I had to give up everything, give them my money, give them my brand-new Volkswagen I had just bought, and turn over everything, and then I could, I could join them in their lives, which sounded very bad. So um, fortunately, my cousin came along and snapped me out of the group of people. <laughs> But that got you thinking, didn't it? I mean, this these are new experiences you're having. Oh, definitely, yeah. It was really mind-boggling because then you're coming in contact with all kinds of uh, people that, you know, I had never been around. And, and even though they, the concept of, like, going to the ranch and giving up everything wasn't my idea of fun, the idea that there was a ranch and people were living such extraordinary different lives, yeah, started me thinking about all that was out there that I didn't know about. And that um, there was so much, you know, to explore and that maybe I should start, uh, you know, thinking in a different direction. Obviously, there were a lot of places that you could end up. How did it happen that you ended up in Alaska, Fairbanks, Alaska? Yeah, of all places, and especially since I don't like snow, I was running away from the snow also. Um, my friend and I had gone to a movie series, and the last one we had seen had been on Alaska. So when we decided, uh, I decided to take off, and he was going to join me, we sort of headed west, and took a long time to get to Alaska, just sort of meandered through the... Rockies, and then went up through Canada and across Canada, and then up into the Yukon, and then we were that far and went, oh, Alaska. We were sitting around the campfire, Alaska, that would be a great, let's go visit Alaska. And um, we were only 1,500 miles from Alaska at that time and drove the Alcan uh, Highway, the Alaska Highway, which at that time was all dirt for the 1,500 miles. And uh, ended up in Fairbanks, and uh, beside, I, I think the deciding factor was we were sitting around the campfire and counted our money and had $26. So we decided, oh, that would be a great place to settle for a while. In fact, <laughs> we need to settle here. We have no money. We're we not have no money. Anywhere. Well, those so, were the days, right? Those were the days where you could make it on $26 and uh, a box of rice aroni and a couple eggs or something. But we weren't going to get too far. We still had to put gas in the car. So my uh, third day in Alaska, I ended up getting a job in a uh, restaurant cocktail waitressing, which I'd never done. And there I remained for uh, about the next 30 years. <laughs> Well, the doors open, we go through them, we never know where uh, the, the path may lead, but your journey uh, led to the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, and boy, that was a little different, wasn't it? 
That was an amazing project that was going on when I came to Fairbanks. They had just started surveying the what they call the haul road to ship the goods and get all the machinery and equipment. They were building an Alaska pipeline to transport oil from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, down to Valdez, where they were going to ship it, you know, to various different ports. It was 800 miles through mountain ranges, over many rivers, through some of the most harsh climates. And um, as I worked up in Fairbanks, I, you know, there was a just, the, the overall thrill and excitement in the town, people making lots of money. I really hadn't been paying attention. Then I started listening to what they were doing, and that was going out through the various unions on the pipeline. And I decided, hey, I wanted some of that. I wanted it sounded exciting, and I wanted to earn, as we called it, the big bucks. You know, and for me, it was. I had left Michigan making about uh, four dollars an hour, so. I was excited and went in and joined the uh, laborers union in Fairbanks, the local union. And I'm sure there weren't many women doing that. No, there weren't very many women. I mean, there were some, and 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 generally they were in the culinary union, being cooks, cooks aides, housekeeping. Not to say that there weren't some in the, you know, all the trades, the operators, and that. But I can tell you the first camp that I went to, which was Happy Valley. Uh, I was 90 women. There were 90 women out of 1,100 workers. So the odds were pretty good for dating and excitement when I got up Happy Valley. Happy Valley in the Brooks Mountain Range. Great place. But pretty wild. uh, Frontier life. Pretty wild, yeah. I did feel like I was, uh, you know, working in the... I was working at what I'd always you know, wanted to be a pioneer, only I was more fortunate. I had housing and I had food and didn't have to go out and chop my wood and that at that time. But, yeah, it was pretty wild. It was a remote area, and we would go up to camps and spend um, nine weeks and then come back. That was generally the time frame, nine weeks up, two weeks off. So nine weeks where there there wasn't any running water or, you know, unheated miner shack. No, up, that was before I left for um, camp. I had been living in town, and ah. my friend and I had jobs, and we had been living in a uh, uh, unheated old miner shack outside of town. It came with his job. It was one of the perks with no running water and an occasional <laughs> well, light. One of the light perks. Light that worked. <laughs> and, and then lived in a tent. I was living in a tent in a campground, and I think it was... Uh, nearing September and it was starting to like get snow flurries and at that time I finally found a house to rent. So this quest for independence, uh, did you find this independence that you were after? Oh, I certainly did. Um, Things were very safe when I was in Michigan. I was surrounded by family, friends, and uh, really didn't have to challenge myself. Uh, And I think when I went to Alaska and especially going to work on the line, I just realized that um, it took a lot of willpower and it took a lot of commitment and that with those two things I could accomplish most most anything I wanted and that I never realized that I had such potential, that we each have such potential for change inside of us, but I think you need to be tested a little to let that come out and that also... Um, 
the independence, knowing that I followed a dream, that we all have dreams, and we all have dreams, and it's just that you have to follow them, and you never realize, I mean, you can never explore or or realize the end or see if you can challenge yourself until you follow those dreams, and I gave myself the opportunity to do that by leaving and then taking on this challenging kind of work. And you meet some challenging people, obviously, uh, when you're uh, pursuing this kind of uh, uh, road, you know, literally in the wilderness. Uh, and Herb is a standout in the book, uh, you say, deserving of the wrath and disbelief of the reader. Yes, he was. He was a standout. He was my first foreman, basically, that I went to work for that... Um, must have run some kind of uh, work camp somewhere. He was perfect. All he did was yell, threaten, scream. He thought uh, <laughs> women just were for fetching, serving. Um, he couldn't even believe that we were working there and didn't like us on his crew. And just was intolerable. So for uh, amusement, uh, my coworkers and I devised little games that we played that made us feel good. Um, I think I wrote in the book about I was on a garbage patrol, if you can believe it, uh, across a plane of snow to look for garbage, which was amazing. It was all over styrofoam things from construction. But we would fill up our bags that he gave us with snow because it's frigid and below zero. And then uh, know that when spring came, they would melt and there would be nothing in them except water. And he thought we were out there doing our jobs, filling up things, putting garbage in, doing what he told us to do. But we became so annoyed with him that we thought it would just be fun to put snow in the bags. So there were bags of snow along the tundra, big hefties. <laughs> Well, you uh, faced some of your, uh, I guess at the at that moment, never experiencing such frigid temperatures, though since living there, and as you explained, it was only fifty below last week. <laughs> but yeah, but those right. were those were kind of startling new new experiences. I'm sure your first time in those kinds of temperatures. Yeah, it was amazing. I know. Um... You know, generally, I mean, those we would have to go out and work. Uh, the coldest day I ever had was at a camp called Chandelar, and uh, the wind chill was 90 below zero. I can say we went out in it. We didn't stay too long because it's just impossible. You can't do anything. But I remember going out and just thinking how insane that was. It was so cold. Of course, you have to be careful, really cautious of everything that you do, what you touch, and the machinery, of course, that was always a challenge to keep that running. But the whole experience beside the weather was just all the animals and just the scenery and just the kind of life that was up there and just sort of destitute and just this 800-mile trail, more or less, with these camps set up. It was just, it was amazing, and you're standing out there uh, among, like, these mountain ranges it was uh, it was unforgettable. I'm I'm thrilled that I had that opportunity. And just as amazing, and maybe probably in your mind even more, uh, and you've dedicated this book to your brother, your brother Stephen. I did. Tell us about that. I did. Well, my brother Stephen has something um, uh, disorder called Kleinfelter's, 
which um, he is uh, physically and mentally challenged. And um, he had lived in a group home and continues to live uh, in a, a facility. And I just, when I left, I was trying to think of a way to keep in contact with him and sort of include him and, and, and make his life, give him the life that I was living. So I started uh, writing more or less a journal about my adventures in the form that somebody could, you know, read this to Stephen, and then he would feel, I hope, that he was sort of on an adventure along with me. And uh, I did that, and so originally this whole manuscript was set up as an, a journal and uh, written to him. And then more or less... Uh, put in a drawer for 30 years until people realized that Alaska was a state. And then I took the manuscript out and had someone edit it, and that's when it went into, uh, became published as a book. Well, Debbie, you're a modern-day pioneer. You have done it. A lot of people talk about it, but you went out and did it, and then you wrote about it as well. So congratulations. Thank you so much, and thank you for your time. The title of the book is Pipe Dream, an Alaskan Adventure, the author D.B. Brownlow. Debbie, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book is uh, online. You can find it at any online store, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the iUniverse bookstore. Locally, it's being sold up in Fairbanks, but um, at this point, just only ordered online. So, Or they can go into dbbrownlow.net. And then that will give other sites where they're able to purchase this. Thanks, Debbie, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intracastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. 
Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central, on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, From Championship Wrestler to Road Rage Defendant. And the author is Christopher T. Harrison, and Chris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chris. How are you today? Well, good to, good to talk to you. Well, great to have you with us. This is quite an ex- story, your story, your memoirs from, as we will point out, from one extreme to the other. Uh, let me read what you have written uh, about your book. You say this. The book is about an individual who excels in athletics and academics but fails to understand other basic concepts about life. It deals with one's temper and how that temper can cause one to lose everything. Well, this book is uh, filled with, I guess, lots of lessons. I mean, there's the lessons of being uh, really good at wrestling and uh, being uh, really achieving great, great goals in wrestling. And then there's, there's the part of your life that's on the other end of the spectrum that you're not so proud of, but you have learned a great deal from that. Uh, before we get into the more about your book, Chris, tell us why you were motivated to write it. Well, personally, Steve, I've written the book to give my version of what occurred as a defendant. Uh, The second time that I had a road rage situation occur in my life, I was a defendant in Virginia in 1997. Uh, My version of that unfortunate incident was never made available to the general public. And unfortunately, the only version that was available was that of the other motorist, as well as the security guard that saw me kicking him in the ribs and heard the clang of a tire. And the state ran with the story, and the media produced it. And uh, it was a very uh, terrible diatribe against me and painted me in the worst possible scenarios, a vicious postal worker, they go on postal. And also, I wanted to give light to my high school wrestling team, which my senior year of high school had exactly one loss all season. Uh, My high school recently had a 50th year anniversary of inception, and all the championship teams of all the various sports were included. This team was left off the list because we had one loss. But there's also an explanation because we had... uh, a virtual, uh, well, actually the newspaper in Baltimore had a blackout that year. They had a strike, and we had no newspaper coverage for two months. So this team received absolutely no acclaim, one loss. Uh, This is the reason that I've written the book. Well, before we get into the road rage and find out the details there, Tell us about this high school wrestling career and what that meant to you and what you learned from that. Well, actually, it's a very good question, Steve, and the reason that was important is because at that time in my life, being a young young person, an adolescent, uh, I wanted to be a football player, and I had failed to achieve that goal. I was never a satisfactory football player. But when it came to wrestling, I seemed to achieve certain things, and I became successful as a wrestler. 
and it's just like the kid that's searching for something of an identity. And I didn't have one until wrestling came along, and it became my identity. And because of it, in high school, I managed to do well in school. I managed to uh, improve my wrestling skills, and my grades uh, also uh, worked out, uh, rebounded as well, and, and I did well in that area. So it was, in, it was incredibly important to my success in the academic world as well as my success in the athletic world. At that time in your life, did you realize you had a temper problem? Yes, sir, I did. Uh, and I, I, I've always had one. Uh, and, and one of the, there's not a question on this, but of course my grandfather, who was a very intelligent person many years ago, cautioned me, I believe it was when I just started college, he said, you know, you're capable of doing anything you want. Don't let your temper get the best of you. So I was well aware of it, as he was, as well. Well, you're a pretty intense person, then. Absolutely. And uh, when I try to do something, I try to do it to the best of my ability. And, uh, you know, sometimes I come up short. And, uh, you know, and sometimes uh, when I was young, especially, the temper would overcome me. And, uh, you know, of course, now I've learned a lot from all these bitter experiences. And, of course, wrestling is an intense sport. Absolutely. It is, it is something that one needs to be in excellent physical condition. And mentally, you have to uh, figure out in your own mind what, it, what would behoove you to use in certain situations against your opponent. So it's taxing mentally as well. Yes, fast-moving, uh, intense, takes a lot of strength uh, of body and mind. And it's interesting that with that kind of uh, foundation of your life, you're, I guess it points out about a temper. A temper is uh, something that has very far-reaching, uh, disastrous effects. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in my life, it's, it's really had those far-reaching, disastrous effects, unfortunately. Well, tell us about 1984. You say you were a victim of road rage. Yes, sir. Uh, I was uh, working the midnight shift at the Baltimore Post Office, and I had a vehicle cut me off, almost hit me as I uh, went into the parking garage. And... Um, as I tried to back up and, uh, and get into a better parking space, the same vehicle, it was a five-mile-per-hour speed limit, doing at least 20, maybe 25 miles an hour, almost hit me again. And uh, in that situation, it was, uh, it, was, it was pretty bad. And the next thing I know, um, uh, this person produced a bayonet, and I was stabbed. And uh, I, need, I nearly died. And um, unfortunately for me, there was a witness who helped save my life. So when that happened to you in uh, following this tragic event, uh, obviously uh, a very uh, criminal event, what did you feel after that? Uh, did you carry this anger for a long time? Uh, I carried an anger that I better I didn't better defend myself. But on the other hand... Um, I felt um, insecure in, in a lot of places, I, you know, especially parking garages. I mean, you don't know what can happen. And for a long time, I actually carried a weapon in my car 
for years, not knowing, you know, with someone, you know, you know that situation. It's 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 similar to a woman who gets raped, and they say, oh, it'll go away in a little bit, but it doesn't. And and for I'd say for several years, I carried an extra weapon because of that situation. I was leery of people. One of the themes in your book is racism. Why is that? Well, uh, in high school, uh, growing up in a city like Baltimore, uh, we had race riots in 1968, and I was directly affected. When one reads the book, I have a chilling account of that experience. And um, also, uh, my senior year, with uh, some of the innuendos about our high school wrestling team, we suffered uh, indirectly as a result of a um, type of a uh, revolt at a certain high school of a certain race, and it wasn't white. And at that time, uh, we, like I say, indirectly were adversely affected by that situation. And in the book, it describes why that occurred. And uh, we've had several instances of um, uh, just just racism in general in the Baltimore area, and I was affected by it. And, in fact, the first person that stabbed me in 1984 was black. But, of course, the person that saved my life was also black. So it's, it's just an interesting area, and it, it affected me greatly. Right. Well, you were stabbed by, uh, obviously, uh the lowest of low, a criminal, doesn't matter what color. Exactly. Exactly. But it just shows you that there's good and bad in every Sure, way. sure. But it's hard to get that visual out of your mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. When did you go to work for the post office? How old were you? I was 31 years old in 1983 when I started working at the Baltimore Post Office. And so this first incident, uh, this first uh, road rage that you were the victim, uh, were you uh, doing your postal duties when it happened? Yes, sir. I was trying to actually uh, park my car in the employee's garage so I could report to work at 11 p.m. All right. And then, of course, later, this is many years later, uh, what year is it now when, the, when suddenly you... Uh, became the uh, road rage and not a victim. You were perpetrating it. Absolutely. How old were and you then? Was, uh, I was 45 years old in 1997. And what, what uh, triggered it? Well, what triggered it is uh, several factors triggered it. Uh, my first wife died in 1995, and I had remarried in 1996. And it was a very bad marriage. And uh, at this point in my life, I was very deep into financial debt. And the day that it happened, I was arguing with my wife. I was actually taking her to work. And um, this person came out of nowhere. And first, he, you know, he was close to us. He was tailgating us. And as the story goes on, he almost ran into us after he tailgated us, and by this point, I, and having an Intimidator license plate frame, this just uh, just just pushed the, the lever up, and my wife was screaming, my ex-wife, he's trying to kill us. And in that situation, 
the very least, I wanted to find out why the situation was occurring. And then I became the aggressor. So you went after him? Eventually. We verbally confronted each other. Um, he made it, uh, and in the book it, uh, it, it lays out the facts. He uh, never attempted to leave the area. He was in front of me, and uh, I was hoping that he would go into that parking garage, which I certainly didn't want to go into another parking garage, and he chose not to go. He chose to wait on me, and the situation was disastrous because by this point, I didn't know in that instance what to expect next. So you snapped? I snapped. I was worried about a man possibly pulling a gun on me, uh, maybe shooting me through the back glass of his truck. Uh, I had a lot of things that went through my mind in about a minute. Sure. And and then I, I obtained a tire iron for the purpose of defending myself, and then when I reached his truck, uh, all hell broke loose. Well, we'll leave it there. People can read to, to find out what uh, hell broke loose, but I we can imagine uh, that's a scary, scary situation. As you look back on it, as you look back on it, Chris, what did you what have you learned from it, and uh, how did you change from it? Well, I had a I've had a very astute lawyer who explained all the ins and outs of the law. And I was honest with him, as I'm being honest with you today, and I explained my actions completely. And he informed me as to what I had done wrong, what I needed to do to correct things, and he also pointed out what I needed to do in my future to never have this kind of occurrence again. And listening to him, he's a very wise attorney, and um, since then I've realized the importance of having, believe it or not, having a cell phone and then you know, if someone on the road uh, does something crazy, just call the law and re- report their license plate. That's the best thing you can do and not let a stranger ruin your life. Your faith in God really has helped you. Absolutely. And in and, and, and every instance when I've been down and out and when I felt pinned to the wall uh, or pinned to the mat, uh, you know, I've prayed and and, uh, you know, I, I don't claim to be a great Christian. There are many, many, many Christians out there that are, you know, seem to be better with the Lord than I am. But I know he's there for me, and he's provided a lot of great people in my life who have helped lead me when I was blind. And I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for them. Well, of course, we hear about that term, uh, somebody went postal, so I guess you fit that at that day, even though you had your own story about the situation, but that's what was portrayed to the public. Absolutely. And the news media and the Roanoke Times in Roanoke, Virginia, ran with the story like wild, and that's exactly what they portrayed me as. Just some crazed postal worker. Yep, beating up a, a very elderly man who was 59 and I was 45. Well, the title of the book is From Championship Wrestler to Road Rage Defendant, and the author is Christopher T. Harrison. Chris, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it is now available online. You can dial up on the Internet from Championship Wrestler to Road Rage Defendant. Uh, it is available through Amazon.com or iUniverse.com.
and uh, I would welcome any comments that anyone would make as far as reading it and giving me an, uh, you know uh, some type of uh, description of what they liked or didn't like about the book. It would be welcome to me. Chris, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Steve, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book Keepers of the Bond, book one. And the author is Kenneth Brown, and Kenneth joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Kenneth. How you doing? Good to have you with us. Uh, you're right here in the studio with us. Now, let me read a couple of things you have written about your book, Keepers of the Bond. You say this, from deep within the primeval swampland surrounding Cato Lake in Texas, Judge Daddy Newland shared his wisdom from God with his friends and family. This is the story of the bond, his community. You also say this, you also say this, sensual history through the eyes of the people that live the history as told in the story, challenging one to think not to follow what politicians want you to believe. So this has a lot of different elements to it, doesn't it? Correct. This is the story of your grandfather. Uh, This is a series of stories that my grandfather told me about people he knew. People he knew. Or knew uh, of through mutual friends. And your grandfather, I read about what 
his parents taught him and they taught him to seek wisdom. Why do you see that so important today? Well, that was one of the things that my grandfather was wanting me to put in a story form. He worked with uh, historic anthropologists and archaeologists uh, all over the world most of his life. They were friends, been his friends. <clears throat> and he was impressed with the fact that the ancients were constantly praying for wisdom. Modern man prays for just what man wants. So whatever is needed at the moment. Correct. Well, and it may not really be needed. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you incorporate the swampland surrounding Cato Lake in Texas? What What is the significance of that? Well, when my family came from Virginia to, to Texas, when it was still part of Mexico, Tejas, you know, we settled in this area. Uh, this uh, The Tyler area, Henderson, Jefferson, Marshall, and around Caddo Lake. So it's, it's a, a core part of our family's history in Texas. You're a fifth-generation Texan. Correct. And, of course, with that is a family history that I'm sure is part of this bond. In the story, bond uh, was, came from a Chinese word, and, it, and to translate it into German and then on into English, you know, the word meant bond or a bonding of people. And this ties back into some of the first Vikings having a working relationship and then intermarrying with Asian trading partners. Uh, one thing that you show in your uh, book, and you take us on a journey, you say, we're going to go different places from Caddo Lake, and we're going to learn from uh, different peoples from around the world? Correct. And that's what your grandfather, what he experienced? Yes. So he was a, a world traveler? Yes. And, and so from his point of view, there's some themes that run through your book. One of them, you say, is overpopulation. Correct. So tell us about that. What did he, how did he see that? How do you see that? Well, I, I see it as a, a very serious issue that, that we need to be, again, praying for wisdom for collectively with everybody in the world. Because we have way overproduced what our planet is capable of sustaining without doing harm to our planet. And we're doing enormous harm to our planet. Now, one of the uh, also messages of part of this uh, deals with, I guess, uh, this population situation. Obviously, sex is a reality of life, and you're uh, very blunt about it uh, in, a, in a loving way, you, right? Right. Sex is beautiful between soulmates, but man makes sex dirty. Now, explain what you mean. Well, that was, that was just the... Uh, my grandfather wouldn't say much about it, <laughs> but he did kind of make that comment. He said that uh, he said usually if anything turns bad, it's man caused it to turn bad. He said in its original form, it was not bad. So the bad part of it is part of this overpopulation problem. All of it ties to it. All of it ties to it. Okay, so this then it's this irresponsible living and irresponsible breeding, as you put it. That that's quoting a, a German doctor that my grandfather knew. I talk about the irresponsible breeding. Okay, and and and, and because of it, I guess this uh, 
this person that your grandfather knew talked about creating defective children. Uh, sadly to say, uh, when you compound defective genes, you're creating a defective child. And uh, doctors are reluctant here in the United States, are reluctant to talk about it, but we need to be gene profiling our children when they're born. So if they have defective genes, we can identify them and then advise with them on where they should or should not reproduce with a, a mate if they have that same defective gene. Diabetes is on a rampage because of it. Hmm. Pollution is another theme. Tell us about that. Well, it all ties back to the overpopulation. Uh, the farm animals that we're producing now for meat supply produces more hydrocarbons than all the cars and trucks running. But we need more farm animals to feed more people so they can have more children. But yet we have a pollution problem. No one's dealing with the, with the root cause of it. And so these irresponsible political politicians, your grandfather didn't have a lot of patience with them. No. <laughs> well, our founding fathers didn't, and for good reason. And if you pray for wisdom, you come to the same conclusion. So wisdom is the key. Great. So I guess our politicians maybe aren't praying for wisdom. There, there's, some, there's some wise ones. Ron Paul is, a, I think, a wise politician and a responsible one. A consistent one. He hasn't changed like a lot of them uh, seem no. to change through the years. Uh, he's been the same Ron Paul, hasn't he? He sure has. Right. Uh, so the creator then plays a very important part in this, and he, uh, the creator was very important to your grandfather, to you. Correct. So, uh, you know, pray for wisdom and follow what the creator reveals through that wisdom received uh is that something that's really hard for man is to follow what he, you know, this wisdom that he may get that maybe uh, will really challenge him? Uh, a lot of people don't want to be challenged. And uh, they're, they're not seeking wisdom, regretfully. They're, they're just seeking what they want and not thinking long term about what it's doing to them or to our world. I'm fascinated with the way that you've tied uh, Caddo Lake, because Caddo Lake, uh, kind of explain Caddo Lake to everyone of what kind of a place it is. It's, it looks like a, a primeval swamp, but it was created in the early 1800s by an earthquake, and the land settled, and about half of it's in Louisiana, about half of it's in Texas, and it's a quite large natural lake. <clears throat> and... Uh, Anyway, the, when the land settled, it filled up with water because uh, it was now a basin, and all the trees died, and they created a log jam that created uh, the natural dam of the lake. And it's a quite interesting place. Uh, I advise everyone to visit Caddo Lake. Inspirational? Yes. But really beautiful. Yes. In a primeval sort of way. Correct. Now... Also a theme, a message of the book, you say, turn your back on the disciples of the angel of hate. Now, those are pretty strong words. Who is this angel of hate? All right. Again, this is just something my grandfather shared with me that uh, Asians that he had known uh, as a young man was talking about all these different spirits and things and all. And they said that, that regretfully that man 
chooses to follow the angel of hate. They become disciples of the angel of hate because they would rather hate and kill their enemy than to try to figure out some way to live in peace with them and let the hate die over a period of time. And he, and he said, he said that's who killed Jesus. You know, he said they didn't want his message. He wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. You know, and right, right. So the angel of hate is real. Well, yes, uh, to the people that my grandfather was, you know, best with, very real. And I personally feel like that it's real. So the key here from your uh, grandfather, and he was called Daddy Newland. Daddy Newland. Uh, you say as a teenager and for the rest of his life, Daddy Newland was obsessed with the pursuit of knowledge, truth, and wisdom. So that has a, had a great impact on you? Oh, yes. And, and he was consequently, and it's told throughout the story in there, uh, you only pursue positive things. Of course, you have to have knowledge and wisdom to determine what's positive and potentially negative and all, but negative only produces negative. So my grandfather said, you know, said always produce the positive, you know. And, uh, and of course, that has to be determined through truth. And you have capitalized wisdom because uh, you have to go to the Creator to ask for wisdom. Correct. That's a gift. That's a gift. We, we can acquire knowledge that may or may not be correct, but wisdom is a gift, and it can only be, it's only given to people that will use it to help fellow man, not, not for greed. This trilogy was created to tell a story about the coming together or bonding of various people Judge Newland knew personally and or knew through mutual friends. Uh, the story is carried forward through the teachings of the bond, and fate brings interesting people together and then blesses the responsible. Uh, give us an example of some of the interesting people that the, your father, your grandfather, uh, got to know and how that uh, blesses the responsible. Well... Uh, one story that, that is one of the stories that I tell in here is where a, a German doctor, uh, Army Medical Corps, German Army Medical Corps, right after Germany surrendered in World War One, he and he and his wife took a picture uh, late in the evening with a, a black black and white. Of course, in those days, all black and white, but it looked like abstract art. But when you look at it, you could finally make out what the picture was. <clears throat> and uh, my grandfather told me about that picture. And years later, I was doing a stand-up drill site title, and I was getting airship information from a man. <clears throat> and on the wall behind his desk was his diploma, uh, certificates of civic work and all, this black-and-white photograph. And I, as soon as I saw it, I recognized it. Well, I had to look at it to see what it was, and then I recognized it from my grandfather's story. And I told the gentleman, I said, that black and white photograph, I said, uh, my grandfather told me about that. And he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, well, what did he blank tell you it he thinks it is, or you think it is? I told him, he said, that's my first cousin's grandfather. And he said, every member of the family has a picture, copy of that picture in their home or office. You know, and my grandfather, you know, knew that German doctor, 
and telling the story. Small yeah. world. Small world. But it all ties back into the Allies didn't honor the terms of surrender after World War One, And boy, what it, what it created was we hadn't gotten over yet. Hmm. And just uh, we have a couple minutes left here, Kenneth. Tell us about Jeb McLeod and Joe Johnson. Uh, two individuals uh, raised on Caddo Lake, friends, served in the military together. The, uh, those names are not correct, you know. And uh, but anyway, <coughs> just to protect the uh, the real names, huh? the real <laughs> right. the real people, right? And uh, my grandfather kept uh, what he called the ledger, and it was a large and accounting ledger. And as he would satisfy himself that this information was factual, he would put it in this ledger. Well, all of these people's names, uh, all of our genealogy, and all that's in it. When he died, it disappeared. And of course, I was supposed to go to me, and I'd, I'd give anything to have it and all. But anyway, the, the, the stories all through here, uh, like later on in the story, you'll progress on to dealing with Ho Chi Minh. Hmm. Most people don't realize that he was an ally during World War II. Hmm. And my grandfather had met him on one occasion and all, but he knew through our military, he knew the stories about what had taken place, what was going on. It just on and on. And uh, this is what he was asking me to share. He said, try to come up with a way of creating a story that people might be interested in reading, where they will end that story, read about all these things that they need to know about. And the importance of acquiring wisdom. Correct. I guess when you acquire wisdom, then you can see clearly which your grandfather, like Ho Chi Minh, uh, he could see clearly what was coming, I guess. Great. Well, the title of the book, Keepers of the Bond, book one. It's uh, book one of a trilogy, and the author is Kenneth Brown. He's uh, with us right here in the studio at TogiNet Radio. Uh, Kenneth, tell us how to get your book. Well, it can be ordered through uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, from the publishing company. Uh, it's available electronically as well as paperback and hardback. Kenneth, is there any other closing thoughts you'd like to leave with us? My grandfather said that he learned from studying the ancients and their teachings that to observe everything closely because it could be establishing trends that could affect you. And I try to carry that theme through the three books and all because we're, we're seeing trends established. Keepers of the Bond, book one. Thank you, Kenneth. Thank you very much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks for having me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. 